we're going to shed ourselves of the old financial system into the new financial system. Now, that process, I think, has begun, and that process will take several years, and it will go in fits and starts. But maybe that's how we wind up doing this, is that we just kind of remake ourselves into a new system. Hey everyone, quick reminder, nothing said on Empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Santiago and I and our guests may hold positions in the companies, funds, or projects discussed. Now, let's get into the show. All right, everybody, we've got uh, Jim Bianco on Empire today. I think Jim, since launching Empire about 12 months ago, Jim is probably top three most requested guests, I would say, in the DM. So Jim, welcome to Empire, my friend. Wow, uh, top three. Uh, top three. I used to think highly of your audience. I'll have to rethink that now. <laughs> in my mind, I'd love to break this conversation into two parts and they'll tie into each other. One is more like markets, macro, stuff like that. And the second part is more crypto focused. And it'll be really interesting to get your almost, I don't want to put you in the trap five bucket, Jim, because I know you've gone down the rabbit hole, but a more um, experienced look at, at crypto from a more maybe capital markets lens. But let's start with the market. So set the tone for us. In my mind, you know, I'm thinking back four or five months ago, the Fed, the real question was like, is the Fed going to hike rates? Can we just start by giving us a lay of the land in markets? What is going on today, February 22nd, 2022? I think the... The simple answer is it's about the Fed's priority. From 2008, let's start with that, when Ben Bernanke first did quantitative easing, first announced the first version of it in November of 2008, through the spring of 2021, a year ago, when the last stimulus check went out, uh, there was no inflation. So the Fed had a single focus on growth, keep the economy growing to create jobs, and with growth, you had the Fed put, don't let financial markets fall and create a reverse wealth effect. So anytime growth got a little bit wobbly or financial markets got a little bit wobbly, the Fed would step in, support the markets, support growth, everything rebounded, and you never had inflation. Everybody won. Well, then starting a year ago, we started getting something we haven't had in 40 years, and that's inflation. And now I think fundamentally the game has changed because of inflation. And I think that the biggest problem that traditional Wall Street has is, has the Fed's priority changed? And the answer that they, I'm hearing more than not is, no, the Fed's priority hasn't changed. The Fed's priority is still growth. That is, the Fed can't let the markets go down. They can raise rates a little bit, but they can't make it hurt. And I've pushed back on that and said, no. Inflation is very injurious to those that don't own assets. The Fed does a three year, uh, once every three year study. And in 2019, the last time they did it, 40% of the country has less than $1,000 of savings and they rent. Those people are hurt every single time they go to the grocery store, the pump, or the mall to buy anything. They are expressing their anger through the plunging approval of the president and Congress. That's why it has been cited in political polls as the number one issue in the country is inflation. It's not crime, it's not COVID, it's not immigration, it's not foreign, Ukraine, Russia, it's none of that, it's inflation. And I think that what Wall Street is failing to recognize is that's a big segment of the population that's being hurt by inflation and they want something done about it. And I think the Fed hears them and the Fed is going to do something about it. And Wall Street's sitting there going, well, there's too much debt. There's too much leverage. We can't let the markets go down because that could create a recession. And they're right. It might. But doing nothing about inflation could wind up being at least as bad, if not worse. The Fed waited way too long to address this inflation issue. They're still buying bonds through March 9th right now. They're still easing through March 9th. And so now they've got nothing but trade-offs. There is no optimum policy. Do this and you satisfy the growth crowd and you satisfy the inflation crowd. It's now pick one or the other. 
And I think they're going to pick inflation to fight more than they're going to pick growth. I'm curious. There is this narrative around trans, inflation being transitory. And you, you have supply shocks, you have, um, you know, which are largely induced by COVID. You know, there, there's the, the economy sort of slows down and raw materials are hard to come by. And, you know, shipping containers are like slower because of COVID. And then there's a demand shock. I'm curious how you think about and if you believe in that narrative that inflation is sort of transitory and will be business as usual in Q2 or Q3 once kind of COVID if you believe this variant is kind of milder than, than the prior one? I think the transitory narrative is, is right in one respect. If you look at the year-over-year year, uh, monthly numbers of inflation, March of last year, 0. 0.6, 0. 0.8 April of last year, May 0. 0.6 last year, 0. 0.9 in June of last year. So that means March, April, May, June this year, we're going to have to put up 0. 0.6, 0. 0.8, 0. 0.6, 0. 0.9, or the year-over-year year numbers will peak. And I don't think we'll be quite that high, and they will peak. So the transitory crowd is correct. We should see a late first quarter, early second quarter peak in the overall level of inflation. But that doesn't mean the problem's behind us, just that we've just hit the worst. I think what we'll find in the second half of the year is the inflation rate will be very slow to come down. And I'll give it to you from a big picture standpoint. The one issue Wall Street kind of is dancing around is this idea that there's been some kind of a regime or secular shift in inflation. Everybody on Wall Street is a mean reverter, right? You know, here's an extreme. Okay, bet it's going to go back to the mean. That that And for most of your career, that works, except the few times when it doesn't work, it really doesn't work in a big way when you bet mean reversion. So they're all betting on a mean reversion in, in inflation, but they're not willing to understand something big happened, and that something big is remote work, work from home. I think that ultimately about a third of the population to maybe half of the population is capable of working from home. Surgeons can't work from home. Taxi drivers, waitresses, policemen cannot work from home. But we can. We can work from Zoom, uh, you know, and a lot of other people can as well, too. Because of that work from home, the basket of stuff that we buy, I think, has changed to more goods rather than services. So why do we have this incessant supply chain shock? We've changed what we buy. We've changed what we buy because we've changed how we work. And that's not going back. Yeah, we might go to some hybrid model, but we're not going back all the way, except if you work on Wall Street. Work on Wall Street in Manhattan is about the only place in the country right now that is demanding JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs leading the charge that you go back five days a week, that they, they want everybody back five days a week. They want to recreate 2019. But everywhere else, we're not. And so that's why we've got this incessant demand because of the supply chain choke. And I don't think it's going to rescind as much as people think. You'll hear a lot of economists say, oh, once we open up, people will value experiences. They'll want to go on vacation. Airline travel will take off. Two things about that. Most of the country is already open anyway. New York City's not open. I'm in Chicago. We're not open. But everywhere else, Florida, Texas, everywhere else has been open for months. And you see that in the data. Stephen Squirry, CEO of American Express, on their call two weeks ago. Record year for American Express. And they said that it was driven by personal travel. Business travel is still one-third of what it was pre-pandemic. Personal travel off the charts. Airbnb last week on their conference call, record year in 21. They said that over half their bookings were one week and 20% of their bookings were one month. That's because of the work from home remote work thing, I think is, and they said it. They said that that's exactly what it was, was driving it. So this idea that once we open up, we'll stop buying stuff and we'll want to go on vacation. We've been doing that for a year in record amounts. So I don't think we're going to see that slowdown of buying stuff unless the economy gets hit, and then it can slow down. But short of that, these supply chain problems are going to persist for a long time. I think in the last congressional hearing, when when I think Powell was, I think it was, I think it was right at the beginning of January, and he said, "Look, he sort of admitted to the this idea that like it is unsustainable. The record level, the the, the amount of debt and system money printing." He said, "Look, at some point, we all kind of know where this ends, which is it's not a sustain, it's not sustainable." Um, and whether you believe hyperinflation kicks in or not, but you know, time and time again throughout history, these things don't typically end well. But you know, the dollar continues to be 
the the you know, the the strong the least of the worst. Let's call it that. Um, and it just continues to be the safe haven out there. Um, of course, now with Russia, you know, and, and this idea of it being pro Bitcoin, there are concerns. You know, there are this idea of people trying to circumvent the dollar and, and the place of the dollar in, in sort of the global financial system. So I'm curious, like, where do you think this all kind of unravels? Like, what's your what's your one, two, three, five year kind of view on on the economy and, and, and the place of the dollar and kind of given where things are. First of all, let me quote Ernest Hemingway from The Sun Also Rises. How does one go bankrupt suddenly and then all at once? And we've seen that, you know, a couple of years ago, we saw that with the city of Detroit, which had been talked incessantly about they're going to go into bankruptcy. They're going to go into bankruptcy for decades. And then in the space of about three months, it all came apart. Uh, and so that's kind of how these things work. We talk about it. We talk about it for years, decades. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It doesn't ever seem it's going to happen. And then all at once, it comes unraveled. Now, when is that all at once? I have no idea. I don't think anybody else has any idea. But I think we're down on that on that road. I agree with you. What you suggested was that, you know, the best way to deal with this might be a hyperinflation or some kind of inflation. But boy, that's really painful if we have to go through some kind of inflation I remember the 70s, and the 70s were not a good time to, to go through economically. The, the pain of inflation is, it's worse than the pain of a bear market. I know that everybody on Wall Street thinks the worst thing that could happen is a bear market. They forgot how painful inflation uh, can be. But the optimistic way I think it's going to end is like a chameleon shedding its skin. We're going to shed ourselves of the old financial system into the new financial system. Now, that process, I think, has begun, and that process will take several years, and it will go on fits and starts. But maybe that's how we wind up doing this, is that we just kind of remake ourselves into a new system. And it's not going to be, it's not going to be linear, and it's not going to be easy at times. But that, I hope, is the light at the end of the tunnel. Jim, what would you do if you were in their shoes? First of all, the, the answer is the Fed has put themselves in a bad position, as I said before. There is no answer that will give both sides the happiness unless unless inflation is truly transitory, peaks in the first quarter, and deflates all the way down to 2.5% by the end of the year. Look, this is about predicting the future, and every option has some kind of non-zero chance. I don't think that's likely, but it is a non-zero chance that that could happen uh, as well, too. So the Fed's going to have to pick one or the other. I think ultimately the Fed is going to pick fighting inflation. Now, here's the problem the Fed has. Every time the Fed is engaged in some kind of a rate hike campaign, they don't know when they've done enough. And they keep hiking rates and hiking rates. And the line you'll hear repeatedly is until something breaks. And usually the leading indicator that something is going to break is the yield curve inverts. Short rates go above long rates as a sign that the financial markets are very, very tight and very close to breaking or uh, have already broken, and it's not quite clear what it is yet and will be very shortly. So I suspect what the Fed will do is side with inflation, raise rates. The market is pricing in six or seven rate hikes for this year. Yeah, that's probably what they'll do. And by the end of the year, the yield curve will probably be inflated, I'm scared, inverted, and we'll be talking about whether or not they've broken something, whether or not they've hiked into a recession. That's a version of breaking something. Um, as well, too. So they're in no real good spot. I mean, the, the flip side is, you know, if they decide that they can only raise rates three times and then they have to stop because they're afraid that they might have a recession, if the inflation rate continues, you're going to have a complete wipeout of the Democrat Party in November. Liz Warren is talking about this right now, about price controls. They're going to bring back 70s price controls. If, you, if, you, if you're mad about the rising prices you see at the store or at the pump, we'll just fix those prices. Now, every time price controls has been implemented, it's been a disaster. It creates shortages and all kind of economic upheaval. But they're desperate, and it's about an election. So I think the Fed knows this, and they're trying to say, wait, wait, wait. Don't go there with the price control thing. Let us do our thing raise rates, and they'll probably go too much and break things. So that's why I'm not particularly optimistic about 2022 right now, is that we're in a bad place unless this this inflation thing 
really peaks and deflates without a recession killing it. It just goes down by itself. And like I said, I give that a low probability. It feels like everybody on crypto Twitter uh, and just on Twitter in general was calling inflation coming. And I'm, you know, what do I know about markets, right? What do I know? I'm a media company guy and run this, run this podcast, right? And so it's like, how are they getting this so wrong when we can see it coming? Let's be fair about crypto Twitter. I've been on, I've been on Twitter since 2011. They've been calling, and I'm talking about FinTwit now, they've been calling for inflation continuously since 2011. Right, so QE happens, we print a bunch of money and people are calling for inflation and it never happens, right? Okay. Right, right, and it, and, it, and it never happened until 2020, 2021, because I think what happened was what the, the change of the, the equation was the pure amount of fiscal stimulus, the mailing of checks, the amount of monetary easing that we've done all combined together with a supply chain problem has produced this inflation. And interestingly, just to give you one uh, idea, the U.S. has the highest developed inflation rate in the world right now, according to the OECD. That's rare. Usually the U.S. is somewhere in the middle of developed countries for it to be number one. The U.S. has also done more monetary fiscal easing and has the supply chain problem. Europe has the supply chain problem, but they didn't, they didn't pump as much money and mail as many checks as we did. So they've got an inflation problem, but ours is bigger because of that. Now, how did they get this wrong? Uh, let me quote a, a Fed governor, Dan Torillo. He was there from 2008 to 2017. And I've, I often joke the best Fed governors to listen to are the ones that just leave because then they tell you what they think. The rest of them are just reading talking points that were handed to them by the Fed staff. And he, gave, he went to the Brookings Institute in October of 2017. And the title of his speech was, The Fed Has No Working Theory on Inflation. And basically what he said, which is true, is that go ahead and take every theory you think about what causes inflation and backtest it. And you'll come up with a zero correlation. And so we really don't understand the dynamics of inflation, which is okay, but the Fed doesn't portray that. The Fed tries to tell you they know exactly why inflation is caused. They can measure it out to the fourth decimal place, and they've got a bunch of tools that can fix it whenever it comes. They can't measure it. They don't know what causes it, and their tool, they've only got one tool to bring in inflation, and that's kill the economy and kill demand and to bring in inflation. That's, but they will never say that, and that's indeed where the problem is. So how did they get it wrong? The theory of inflation is very, very difficult. They also bought into their own thinking. They bought into their own thinking. Inflation is dead. It's a combination of demographics, globalization, and technology that's caused inflation to stay down. So now we can invent modern monetary theory to explain why we can print money and never have inflation. And the Fed adopted in August of 2020, at probably the worst possible time, a new framework. And that new framework was, we're going to let inflation run hot because we want to get the economy running as fast as it can to lower unemployment as much as possible. That framework would have worked pre-pandemic, I think. But post-pandemic, we're in a new world, so they brought in the wrong prescription. They brought in a prescription for the previous cycle at the beginning of the next cycle. And that's what led them to start with this whole transitory thing because they just brought in the framework. They didn't want to admit through two or three months after the framework came in that it was a mistake. They still won't admit it's a mistake, but now they're kind of stuck. This is a perfect segue into crypto, right? And so I think the reason that folks often are excited that we created crypto, the reason we created crypto is to get away from these stodgy capital markets where people are meddling in the markets and, you know, go back to free markets and, and, and more efficient markets and better technology. But now we're in 2022 and a lot of folks are just kind of saying, and sometimes I agree with them, that we're just recreating capital markets and we're recreating financial markets with the exchanges and the lenders and the borrowers and the market makers and the big hedge funds now moving into the space. So I would actually like to ask you to start by defining the problem as you see it, right? And why you're excited about crypto. So like, what is the issue? What is the actual issue with capital markets today? And why does that make you excited about crypto? Here's the dirty little secret to everybody who's listening to this. And you, Santi, and you, Jason, and me as well, too. All of our net worths are zero. We don't have any money. All the financial institutions own all the money. They have a ledger at all these financial institutions that says, we agree 
that you can have this amount of money or that amount of money based on whatever, um, however you, you've acquired it. I don't mean illegally, but that you've acquired it. But now we've found out with the Canadian truckers and everything else, see, no, you really don't own your money. And at any given moment, you can be debanked, deplatformed, whether or not it's that you're protesting against a government that doesn't like the protest, you're buying a product that the government disapproves of, whether it's a gun or ammunition or whatever other product that they've decided that they don't like uh, as well too. And as we move further down the line, there's going to be more and more restrictions. We've, you've seen the stories in the last few weeks that Hayden Adams was debank, uh, debanked from uh, JP Morgan one Tuesday. And so have a lot of other people in the crypto space. Uh, they can get away with that because remember, it's not your money, it's their money. And I think that that realization is what has been driving me to get excited about crypto and what has been driving everybody else to get excited about crypto. Where, where did this come from? I think the genesis of this was 9-11 and the Patriot Act. Because prior to that, you know, there was a lot more rights and restrictions. It's my money in the bank, but now it's really, it's really the government's money run by the financial institutions, not your money. And they put more and more reporting requirements and restrictions on it. They tried to in the latest um, infrastructure bill, which was had some anti-crypto provisions, that they wanted to have every transaction down to $600 reported to the government. If you took $600 of cash out to stick in your pocket, that was going to get reported to the government. Now, that failed. But they try to. So I think that there's this understanding of this loss of control of my own personal finances. And look, without without, you know, a bank or being part of the financial system, it's really hard to survive in modern in modern society without it. And the control that they've had on it is too much. And I see crypto as a natural pushback to that. How has your journey in a crypto been like talking and has the quality of the conversation shifted over the years? with your folks that, that you've been close to in traditional finance? Like, are, do they, are, are, are they getting it? Are they, do they have a better appreciation now? Or is it still very much the same level of skepticism that I'm sure a lot of your friends looked at you and said, you're doing what, Jim? You're going into crypto? Like, you must have lost your marbles, you know, because yeah, right. I'm curious. So a couple of things. First of all, let me say this at the outset. And Jason, don't cut this out, right? I am a big hodler crypto fan. I am down the rabbit hole and I believe in this space and what is trying to be done here. Now, for the rest of the interview, I'll probably crap all over it. But, uh, well, look, you know, just, just to put this up front, look, I know ARK, the, uh, the, the ARK came out with a, a forecast of a million dollar ETH in 10 years. And I think that's possible. And I, but I think it's also possible if we fix and correct some mistakes and if other things happen. It's not possible that, oh, just buy some ETH and just check it again in 10 years and it'll be worth a million dollars each. A lot of things have to happen first. And some of these things aren't really happening as well. Now, so now that I've said that, let me talk about uh, the, the TradFi people I talked to. Now, I talked to a lot of what you would refer to as public kind of money, you know, institutional money, mutual funds, um, pension funds, endowments, trusts, some hedge funds um, as well, too. So that's kind of my my space, some of the banks as well. I fell down the, the crypto rabbit hole in 2017 when I first bought my first Bitcoin uh, back then uh, and have been in the in this space and just been growing with this space ever since. Up until, let's say, DeFi summer, it was it was a joke. It was considered a joke by by TradFi, and they would they would dismiss it. And you're right, you're doing what? You've lost your mind. Why don't you just take your money to the racetrack? It's kind of the same thing. Uh, or as one friend of mine said, take it to Vegas because at least when you lose it all, they give you dancing girls and free drinks. You don't even get that in crypto uh, as well. But then starting with DeFi summer, they started to think, okay, it's not a joke anymore. But I don't know what it is. And my biggest complaint about TradFi is all they're doing, and again, I'm talking about these public funds that I talk to, is they're buying, they're just, they're just buying and holding coins. That's all they're doing. I mean, they're they're really no different than a lot of retail. They're opening up a Coinbase institutional account and they're just buying some coins. And when I ask them, are you staking it? Are you lending it? Are you borrowing against it? Have you thought about putting it in a liquidity pool? Their eyes glaze over. They're not at that point yet. They're, they're just at the point of just buying and holding 
tokens. And therefore, they're all a bunch of number go up people. And I'm saying, you guys, the traditional financial guys, you should be falling down the rabbit hole of, you know, dissecting Uniswap and figuring out how Uniswap works and working the V3 curve to your advantage. Maybe getting into Aave or getting into Curve or Convex and learning about what's going on there. What are you doing with DAI? And they never, what is DAI? You know, what are you doing with MakerDAO? What is MakerDAO? They're not ready there. They're buying Bitcoin, they're buying Ethereum. And that's the majority of them. Now, I'm not speaking about everybody. And it's like, go the next step. Do something else other than just buy and hold a little coin. And they're not quite there yet. And that's why I've been tweeting out a lot about the, the correlation between traditional markets and crypto is, is the highest it's ever been. Because what these traditional financial types, they got a lot of money and they're throwing it in there is they're viewing crypto as the end of the risk curve. You know, you start off with government bonds is the safest thing. Investment grade bonds, high yield bonds, equities, low rated equities like ARKs, stocks, and then crypto on the end. And so all crypto is, is just a, a, a 5X S&P ETF is really what it's become. It shouldn't be that. And I don't think it ultimately will wind up being that. But for right now, it is that. And it's because I think a lot of these funds are just, let's just buy some coins. Number go up, number don't go up, let's sell them. And what are they basing their decisions on to buy or sell it? The same macro things that they're basing their decisions on, whether or not to buy or sell traditional stocks. It reminds me of that, uh, the Ben Hunt article. Actually, maybe you shared this maybe a month or two ago in praise of Bitcoin, right? You know what I'm talking about? And really what you're mentioning, I think is everyone's so focused, we all wanted the institutions to come. Since 2017, it was like, the institutions are coming, the institutions are coming. Well, now the institutions came and they cared about one thing. They didn't care about the art. They didn't care about the narrative of Bitcoin. They didn't care about self-sovereignty of Bitcoin. They didn't care about any of that stuff. They cared about the price of Bitcoin, right? And so now we have a huge swath of folks who have moved into the industry who care about one thing, which is the price of Bitcoin. And we'll link it in the show notes, but Ben Hunt has this gorgeous article uh, about in praise of Bitcoin, which is really about how Bitcoin is so much more than just the price. And it seems like that's what you're talking about, which is Bitcoin has to get back to that narrative and other aspects of the industry have to get away from just things like price. Am I understanding that? Understanding it correctly? You are absolutely right. And that was a fantastic piece by Bent. I like what he said. Bitcoin, what, I think he called Bitcoin the ultimate NFT. The whole thing is, is, is a perfectly constructed NFT. And we're not we're not there. And part of that is maybe it's the thinking on the institutional part, you know, because a lot of people will ask me, what's the use case? Okay, so you can borrow, you can lend, you can do this. What to get more coins under what's the use case? And I've liked to tell them that the use case, I've been saying this for a while, was Web3 or the metaverse. And that if you look at the total market cap of the Googles, all the platforms, if you look at the market cap of all the platforms, Remember, I go on Twitter or Discord or YouTube and do what all day long? I make, I make Google rich is what I do all day long because they own it. I don't. But under Web3 world, when I start to own my own property and I'm a part of the creator economy and I own what I want, this is going to be the banking system for that new economy. All right, you're speaking in abstract. Give me a hardcore example. Well, it's coming. It's coming. These primitives are being created for that to come in the future. They're not quite there yet. They're not quite seeing. Well, how does that work? If we, if you own your own, if you own your own um, uh, handle on Twitter, how do you get paid? You know, and and that's kind of where they're kind of stuck. And I'm like, well, you know, and the answer I could give them is that hasn't been solved yet, but that's where we're headed. And there are a number of people that see that we're headed that way. Zuckerberg gets it. That's why we named this company. I think to some extent, um, uh, you know, that's why uh, uh, Square is now the block uh, as well, too, that they kind of get that that's where we're going with this. But the journey has just begun and we haven't quite figured out where it's going to go. And this is going to be the financial system for this new digital world. Right now, crypto serves as the extreme end of the risk curve, right? Folks who want to push farther and farther out on the risk curve end up going into maybe equities and then they go into tech stocks and then ultimately they go into crypto. When does that change or does it does it ever change? What I think is holding back DeFi is 
the whole universe of stable coins right now. There's two problems with stable coins. Problem one is the growth rate of stable coins has really slowed down. Over the last several months, the growth rate of stable coins has been about 20% a year, down from well over 100. So yeah, we always look at the charts that go up like that, that show there's 160, 170 billion dollars in stable coins. But it's really slowed down its growth. And I, I run a chart, and I think I sent it to you, there it is on the screen, of the of TVL divided by the amount of stable coins outstanding. Now, given the uh, the capital efficiency of stable coins, I don't think you can get TVL much above two to one. So for every dollar of stable coins, you could get about two dollars of TVL. So how do you take TVL from quarter trillion dollars, you know, using the broad DeFi Llama metric to a trillion, four exit? You got to four X the number of stable coins outstanding. Now, there's a problem in, for, in doing that with stable coins. 70% of the money in stable coins are in the centralized coins, the two big ones in Tether and Circle. And I've talked to regulators from the World Bank to the Federal Reserve, and the attitude that they have about stable coins is they are a run waiting to happen. Now, that run may not be this year or next year, but eventually somewhere someone's going to decide that they're going to want to leave the whole crypto space and they're going to take their stable coins and they're going to run to the stable coin issuer and say, give me dollars. And that stable coin issuer is going to have to sell billions and billions of dollars of treasury bills or commercial paper or whatever they have backing it to meet this rush. That That's what they worry about. Because I said that, I got, this is my take on the circles of the world. They're not going to let you get to half a trillion or a trillion dollars. They're just not going to let you do that because you will pose a systemic risk to the whole system as they see it. Now, I don't think there's ever going to be that run because I think that that run that they're worried about means that everybody's decided that the crypto space is done and it's all over and I got to get out before it's getting out. I don't think that's going to happen. So I don't think that run's going to happen. So where the crypto space is going to need its growth, I think, is from decentralized coins because uh, the centralized coins... The regulators are just not going to allow them to get that big and pose that risk. If if Circle if Circle was 100% backed by T-bills and it was $500 trillion or $700 trillion, this, the regulators would still be scared shitless. Someday, somebody's going to want $250 billion back in a day. And they're going to have to sell $250, worth of, of, uh, $250 billion worth of T-bills in a day. And they're going to wreak havoc all over the TradFi markets. That day might not be next week, it might not be in five years, but that day they fear is coming. So they're never going to allow it to get that big. So how are you going to get stable coin growth? You're going to have to get it from the decentralized coins. The DAIs, the USTs, the Fraxes, they're going to have to start, you know, seeing the adoption. Now, the good news is, if you look at the dominance, I think I, I might have shown you that, uh, sent you that chart too. The dominance of, uh, uh, the bottom line is the dominance of decentralized Stable coins is 18%, but it's a new high. So the so they have got the the most dominance they've ever had. It's only 18%, but at least they're moving in the right direction right now. You can see the top line is is tether. It's definitely its days are done and it's kind of going the other way. I mean, when I say its days are done, it's not growing anymore. The rest of the space is growing, and that's why its dominance um continues down. But that black line in the bottom, I think it's got to be these decentralized coins because then. You're not going to be encumbered by a, a bank of international settlements or a Federal Reserve or an ECB or a Department of Treasury or a finance minister to say, no, you can't do that. You can't grow any more than you have. And I haven't even touched the permissioning aspect or the censorship aspect that decentralized coins have as well, too, because they'll try and stick that down them as well. So it really comes down to if you can get these decentralized coins to start really ramping up their adoption a lot more, and then you could start to see the TVLs really expand, I think then you might be able to turn to Wall Street and go, you got to do more than just buy Bitcoin. You got to start thinking about some of the, about this whole new financial structure and start playing with it as a financial structure. Then the correlation breaks. I'm going to push back on that a little bit, actually, Jim. Okay. Um, I'm going to push back on that. So the grow i feel like you're pulling an arbitrary number out with the like 500 billion or 300 billion dollar limit with stables i think that anyone who, who has gone into usdc 
dangerous game, by the way, arguing with Jim Bianco, but uh, or debating Jim Bianco. The anyone who's gone into USDC knows that it's a better product. And so instead of thinking about this stuff as money or what whatever this esoteric crypto thing that I think a lot of financial folks like to think of it uh, of it as, it's really just a better product. Anyone who's gone into USDC has never taken their money out of the USDC because it's just a better product. And I think that right now what happened is we ran up to like what do we run up to like 250 billion in stables or yeah i think in stables now we're back down to like 200 billion i'm sure it's on this chart that you sent me or 160 billion today yeah why would we if everyone knows that stables are a better product why wouldn't we just why wouldn't people just keep moving into stables and they're not going to take their money out let me be clear on something they are going to move into stables and they're going to want to move into stables the problem is the, the circles of the world and the tethers of the world I think, you know, um, circle, they're going to need the permission of the regulator to keep expanding. They're going to, they can expand now because they're not big enough to pose a systemic threat to the, to the oh, traditional you're, oh, financial oh, and you're, system. So you're saying that like once you hit 300 billion or 500 billion, that switches and that's a systemic risk to the system. Yeah, no, it's that the regulators are going to turn yeah. to circle and say, stop, you're now, you're now a systemic risk. You can't grow anymore. And that so they've got a hard cap of where that number is going to be. Mm -hmm. Look, they've already hit that with Tether. Now, Tether's a little different because they lost confidence in the, the, the assets backing it. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're, they're limited not by the market's demand for their product, but by the regulator allowing them to grow as much as they have. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean by that these regulators treat these stable coins like they're money market funds. Mm -hmm. And what ultimately does everybody do with the money market fund? They ultimately withdraw it at some point because uh, it's just a cash. It's the transactional balance that you've left there. They think of stable coins the same way. And so they think that if 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 Circle ran the 500 billion, that at some point people are going to want to withdraw that money mm -hmm. and they're going to have to sell half of those treasury bills, maybe in short order. And that would be a destabilizing event. So they're not going to allow them to get that big. Mm -hmm. So the only place they can get that big is where it's outside the reach of the regulator, and that is in the decentralized stables. Mm -hmm. So if you're a regulator and you see USDC, you know, shouldn't you be super supportive of, as, as a central bank, like you want to increase, like there's nothing better than having a, a, a demand source for your currency. Now, USD, for, for the, everywhere you travel in the world, people want to hold dollars. It's hard sometimes to come by them or you don't want to hold them. Now you have the possibility of having a digital dollar called USDC, which is backed dollar for dollar in a bank account in the U.S. And so if you're a regulator and you understand that, then wouldn't that make the case for them to be very pro USDC? Because all that's doing is you're now opening a, a, new, a new funnel for the world to hold the reserve asset, which is the dollar. You would think that would be the case, and you would think that they would be super excited uh -huh. that we're using the dollar as the benchmark for a stable. Uh, as well, look, we right. could pick something else. We could pick the euro. We could pick gold. Right, yeah. We could pick whatever we want, but we, we're picking the dollar. And that that, in your thinking, probably in my thinking, is we'll continue the dollar as the reserve currency for the next generation mm -hmm. as a digital stable coin. Right. They don't think of it that way. If you can see it in you could see it in the Federal Reserve's paper about central bank digital currencies. The paper was just they laid out the pros and cons and they had, and they tried to express no opinion. But what was the number one concern that they had about a central bank digital currency, a, a Fed stable coin? Their number one concern was it would disrupt the banking system. Mm -hmm. And so what they are thinking about is not investor protection, but incumbent protection. And the incumbent protection that they're thinking about is when they hear about Circle going to 500 billion, what's this mean for the traditional banking system? And can we allow this to happen to the traditional banking system? Mm -hmm. That's where the pushback comes from. Look, mm -hmm. I, I've, I've said to them, you know, this is going to happen with or without you. Mm -hmm. And I said, there's two ways we're going to wind up mushrooming this DeFi world out. And if you want to keep pushing back and shutting out Americans and being afraid of, of stable coins, is thinking of them as posing a risk as not an enormous opportunity, mm -hmm. it's going to be designed without you.
Mm-hmm. So they don't think the same way that you do or I do. They think about it in terms of protecting the legacy system. Mm-hmm. And that's what their first and most important mission is, is mm-hmm. to protect that system. Why do you think, you know, Cynthia Lummis, the senator from Wyoming, has been hammering away at the Fed mm-hmm. that they're not giving the, the banking licenses to Avante and some of the other Wyoming-based mm-hmm. uh banks that want to engage in crypto transactions. Mm-hmm. And the Fed is it's gotten to the point where the Fed has just been basically saying, just don't ask anymore. They're just not going to get one mm-hmm. um, right now. They, they're afraid. They are afraid mm-hmm. of disrupting the current financial system. Yeah. Is it crazy to think that in the next five to 10 years, we will settle whatever, we'll price oil, we'll price other commodities, we'll think of the base pair not being the dollar, but being something else, whether it be a decentralized stablecoin. Again, it still is a reference to something else, but maybe it's a reference to Bitcoin or Ethereum. Like, is, will we ever see that in our lifetime? I, I think we will. And, uh, you know, I think we will see that because, as I said, the dollar is the reserve currency. The mm-hmm. next reserve currency, and look, it's 50 years since Nixon closed the gold window and August 15th of 71, when it became a pure fiat. And the, the shelf life of a reserve currency, if you go out through history before the dollar was the pound uh, through World War II, is about 50 years. So we're mm-hmm. at about at the limit of what we've seen historically for reserve currency. So what's going to be the next reserve currency? It isn't going to be another fiat. You know, the, 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 the euro and the yen or the yuan, or the women B or whatever we're calling it this week, they can all jump up and down and say, we're going to be next, we're going to be next. They're not going to be next. It's going to be a digital currency mm-hmm. is going to be next. It's not going to be yeah. one backed by a government. It's going right. to be some kind of neutral decentralized currency. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm a decentralized maxi. I think the most important thing this space can do is decentralized. Sure, you can start centralized and then want, you know, to you know, give the devs the ability to change things and iron out problems and get things rolling. But then you've got to really start to decentralize. Because without decentralization, we're not creating a new system. We're creating a digital version of what we have. If we don't decentralize and the space takes off, then these regulators are just going to come in and just Mm -hmm. slap the same rules on the digital version that they had on the analog version. At the Mm -hmm. end of the day, you're going to have a minor bit of efficiency because it's digital over analog and nothing has really changed. Mm -hmm. So in order to purely decentralize, is the way you've got to go with this right now. Mm-hmm. And that's been worrisome to me as well, too, because I get it. You see a lot of people run to alternate L1s or L2s because gas fees are low or almost non-existent in some cases. Mm-hmm. But then they've got to start to really decentralize in order to, you know, I think have some kind of a future. And some of these L1s are not really decentralizing or they make noise that they're going to recentralize. I'm thinking of Solana. They say they're going to do it. But I'm still waiting for it to, you know, see some 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 roadmap of how you're going to uh, really decentralize it down the line. But they don't. And without that, you're leaving yourself open that if we all start using these alternate L1s, they're very centralized and very cheap. Well, then the FDIC, the Fed, the OCC and the U.S. Treasury is going to come in and stick the same damn rules on them that they have on the banking system now, and very little will have changed at the end of the day. Yeah. I don't disagree with you, Jim, at all. Like, I am a big proponent of decentralization, credibly neutral platforms that you have the certainty. You can inspect the code or you have someone tell you, look, no one can change this. Like, we have, Jason, you were the one that brought this up in a prior episode. In other parts of our interactions, we have the metric system, we have imperial system, we have, like, the world coordinates and converges on standards that are kind of decentralized, right? There's a governing body that says, you know, like we, we, we anchor temperature on, you know, Fahrenheit or Celsius. Like there's these standards that seem to be not controlled by one single entity. Um, the, the issue with decentralization is, look, I think in an ideal world, yes, but practically speaking, it is tough from a consumer standpoint where there continue to be hacks, there continue to be... Uh, you know, there's no 1-800 number to call if you if your seed phrase gets stolen or, or what have you. Like, that's the, you know, I don't think anyone, not everyone is prepared to be their own bank, to have their own, like, keys. And, 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 and so I think there needs to be guardrails. And, and where maybe there's a distinction. You could be decentral, fully decentralized, but also have services on top of these protocols that, you know, cater to different people. 
Um, but I am curious how you think about that trade-off because do you think the world is kind of ready to be truly decentralized? In a binary way, no, the world's not ready, but there's options. Look, if, if you are worried you're going to lose your keys or this stuff is too complicated, um, you know, you could stay you could stay in a Kraken or a Gemini or Coinbase and stay centralized. And there is a 1-800 number you can call to get some help if that's what you desire. You know, my mother is 78 years old. She owns some Bitcoin on Coinbase and I've, nice. she's going to kill me again because I mentioned her age. Uh, and uh, <laughs> she, you know, and I've asked her about, you know, putting her money on, onto, a, onto, an, onto a wallet, even using uh, Coinbase's wallet. And, and she just shakes her head and goes, no, no, no. It's just too yeah. much for her. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's just too much for her. So, okay, fine. She could stay right there. The, you know, the, the rest of us can move more into a, a decentralized world uh, as well. And then over time, as things become better laid out. One of the things I've, I've railed against, too, is that the UX experience is still not acceptable for the average person. It is better. I mean, I was in this space in 17. I remember what it was like five years ago. It's way, way better than it was five years ago. But it's not good enough to get some non-financial type off the street and say, hey, put your money into this decentralized wallet and then, you know, st- uh, put it on and then lend it out or borrow against it in order to earn some interest. It, it's still, they're still not there. And Santi, I'll use a phrase that I've used before that I know you'll love. I, I, like, I know that a lot, of, uh, a lot of protocols have community outreach. Maybe they should have a muggle outreach for the rest of the human race <laughs> oh, yes. in order to say, this is how you use this stuff uh, as well. Because I think part of the problem with some of these protocols is you look at their websites when you connect to them and, it, and and I think they do it on purpose to make it look like a bad 2003 version of the website because you know we're serious developers and that's how they're supposed to look and it isn't very customer friendly and we start need to be customer look there's hundreds of millions of people that would probably like to try this but we really turn them off by making it as difficult as we do you obviously care about crypto you're really in the weeds of these stables and fracks and all the- like, I'd love to see it. What is the reason why you believe that we need all of this stuff? I think it's twofold. One, I am not a big fan of the current financial system right now. I think it's it's slow, it's bureaucratic, and it's intensely unfair. Uh, and two, I think in the new digital world, the, the, the current financial system is not equipped to deal with a Web3 metaverse type of world as well, too. And I don't think I'm alone in this. I've used this statistic before. There are 11 sectors in the S&P 500. You go back and look over the last 25 years, 15 years, last 10 years. What's been the worst performing of those 11? It's been the financials. And what has been among the worst performing in the financials? It's been the banks. I think that the marketplace itself is signaling there that the current banking model is ripe for disruption and maybe should be disrupted. The problem is, unlike city taxi cabs or hotel rooms or newspapers, is we've got various three and four letter or, um, regulators that are, they think their job is to prevent that disruption from specifically happening. And that's why we continue on with this financial system. But ultimately, I think that the financial system needs to evolve and it needs to change with the new digital world. And the current one we have is just not up for doing it. And the current one we have is intensely unfair. You know, money transfers, it's come to light, even the Fed acknowledged it in its CBDC paper, that money transfers right now are just highway robbery. They're slow, they're intensely expensive. And it frosts me every time I, I bring this up on on. on uh, Twitter or something like that about the unfairness of the money transfer system. I'll get, dude, I could Venmo you money in three seconds for no cost. Yes, because you're rich. You have a bank account. And when you have a certain minimum in your bank account, you're not charged a fee. You could download Venmo and connect it to your bank account. But if you're worth 400 bucks and you just got paid $100 cash and you'd like to send that back to your family in a Central America country, half of that money's going to the banking system and they're getting 50 bucks in two weeks. So that's the unfairness of that system that needs to be fixed. And everybody acknowledges it needs to be fixed, but no one seems to be in any hurry to fix it, partially because there's no vested interest in fixing it. So I think the financial system is ripe for disruption. And I'm not going to sit here and say, 
this old system should continue the way it is. It's going to have to change, and it's going to change one way or the other. And what will the integration of DeFi and traditional finance look like? Will it look more like an integration, or will it look more like Uber taking over taxi cabs, right? Will JP Morgan integrate with all these DeFi protocols, or will JP Morgan get completely run over by a combination of Uniswap, Aave, Maker, Compound, et cetera? Well, that all depends on the regulators. I mean, if, if JP Morgan wants to be the bank of the metaverse, they're going to have to create some kind of decentralized version of, of themselves in the metaverse. They can't. But the problem is, I don't think regulators are going to allow them to do that anytime soon. So the compounds and the Aves and the Uniswaps of the world will probably be the bankers of Web3 and of the metaverse. Now, there is one thing that they will continue to do, and you guys correct me here on this, because I've thought a lot and looked into a lot of this, is that a lot of traditional banking really works on unsecured lending. You know, so when I get a mortgage on my house, it's, mm -hmm. it's somewhat unsecured. I have to show proof of, of income and a lot of other things to show that I'm capable of buying that house. We can't really have... I know the house is collateralized, the mortgage is collateralized by the house, but what the bank never does is give you a margin call. You're paying your mortgage every month and then some oracle says the price of the house has fallen below a threshold. You got to come up with, you know, X amount of money in collateral or you lose your house, even though you've never missed a payment. So same thing with, you know, with auto loans, with, uh, un, with um, uncollateralized startup loans for new businesses and stuff. That is a gigantic business. That business will always be there for the traditional financial uh, system. I'm not sure you can do that in a decentralized way. How do I take out a loan in a decentralized, permissionless way without any collateral to start a business? Mm -hmm. I know there's attempts that there's been attempts to try and do that, but I haven't seen I mean anything that's really going to work. So that's going to be the domain of the traditional financial system. But a giant part of that business, collateralized lending. And, and, and swapping of tokens, that is a gigantic business. That is going to be a very viable mm -hmm. business, especially in a Web3 metaverse world. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What's your take on that? Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think you, you need a reputation system in a decentralized context to be able to do these under collateralized loans. And there have been attempts at that. I think there's a lot of the optimist side of me says there's a lot of richness and history in your wallet that can I can, you know, apply some sort of modeling to say, hey, you, Jim, are a credible, you know, um, you know, borrower and you have some sort of risk profile attached to that. Of course, you can always abandon rage, quit the system and not come back. But I think more and more people will value, especially people that don't have access to competitive credit, that they will not like. As always, you can always game these systems in crypto. It's a very adversarial environment. But I think if you create incentives to nudge people in the right direction, you could see a version of this world where you can do some under collateralization, uh, under collateralized loans. But obviously not as straightforward as a traditional system because the only reason credit gets enforced is violence. Throughout history, you enforce credit through violence or the threat of violence. And so... Um, I guess that the what is most interesting, uh, and I think is going to happen this year, next year is probably a hybrid environment where you have J.P. Morgan and all these financial institutions use something like a, a like a Ave Arc, for instance, which is a permissioned kind of Ave environment. And all you're really doing is you're using the rails of crypto to settle these loans, but you still kind of have the traditional physical world and legal frameworks to enforce. Um, some sort of like you can issue a mortgage on chain. Why? Because you can use a stable coin and you can service more people um, and you tie a wallet to a social security number. Like it's going to happen. So can I ask you a question about Ave mm -hmm. Because hasn't that inverted the world? Because right now in the traditional world, if you are an institution, you have access to a lot more options than you mm -hmm. do as a retail investor you know, least of all the accredited investor rules as well, too, mm -hmm. which I think are nothing more than an insult to the American public, you know, that totally. we have decided that an accredited investor is somebody who's got a million dollars because that implies some kind of intelligence that somehow you don't have if you have a net worth of less than a million dollars. But in the digital world, it seems to be kind of the opposite. The restricted part of the world is the Ave Arcs. The unrestricted part of the world is the retail part of the world as well, mm -hmm. too, which is the inverse 
of the traditional system. So mm-hmm. they're always going to be at a disadvantage as long as they have to work in that in that traditional mm-hmm. kind of space. Do you agree with that? Or do you think that there really isn't that many restrictions for those retail or institutional investors using their, their rail? Well, I think they're, they're still using, mind you, like the sediment layer is still Ethereum. And I think like, you know, to your point, why why I think financials have been probably the one, the more underperforming sectors in the economy is because like, since the financial crisis, they've been saddled with compliance and the, they, they have a lot of overhead and inefficiencies. But when you can have, if you're a bank, like I think you have a lot of incentives to use DeFi, or a settlement layer like Ethereum, because, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you don't have to, like a lot of your operations, a lot of your compliance and back office gets totally cut and you could just do things much faster and you streamline a lot of your cost structure using some a, a sediment layer like a blockchain, you still use a lot of contracts and documents and the same kind of workflow that you're using. The only distinction is you might be able to service and underwrite way more mortgages on chain uh, because you're able to address perhaps and expand your the people that you're servicing, assuming they KYC, assuming that they give you all the information that they're going to need, they give it to you once and you tie a wallet and you see all the activity and you know their income, you know, everything else is the same. It's just a settlement of it. Um, because as you know, like getting a mortgage is highly inefficient for you, the consumer, and for the bank, I think. So if you collapse those costs and you streamline a lot of those operations, I think you can do that. Um, it's something like Ave Arc. So I, the only, the only issue with that is that, uh, I just point out is that, you know, you used a mortgage. A lot of those inefficiencies have been driven by the regulators themselves. Anybody mm-hmm. who's gone through a mortgage closing and you sign your, you sign fifty thousand documents and you hire a lawyer and you don't even know what you're signing, that's all by that's all by regulation. A lot of those regulations will have to go away. And there's vested mm-hmm. interests in keeping this. There's a whole industry of lawyers that are being employed as real estate lawyers, uh, you know, title trust companies uh, as well too, that would have to go away if we got rid of that. So it's going to be. Yes, in the long run, that would happen, but it's totally. not going to happen anytime soon because there's going to be a big yin and yang between the two groups that are going to fight against it. Yeah, Jim, I, have a, I actually have a different take on it. One is um, Ave Arc is not... Ave Arc already exists in the traditional world. It's called like... A lot of what we're building with settlement layers in crypto exists in traditional, in traditional institutional markets, right? Like intercustodial stuff looks a lot like the London Prussia's metals market, right? Where they just net down exposures at the end of the day, or like these DeFi, fully KYC DeFi pools looks a lot like the FX ECN, right? Where there's this accredited intermediary who sits in between people. And so I think that's what, I think a lot of this stuff that we're building in crypto just looks like traditional capital markets. It's just, it's just more efficient without as many rules and people sitting in between because these markets have been created over sometimes decades, but oftentimes hundreds of years. so, you know, and, and to take this full back to what I said at the beginning about that, a lot of institutions are just, you know, a bunch of degens, you know, holding coins. Um, if you look at Ave Arc, now, the last time I saw it, most of the people that are using that are basically crypto funds, crypto VCs. It's people that are already down the rabbit hole that are already doing this stuff They're And I'm not saying they won't, but as of yet, they're not dragging in newbies. Okay, I want to go beyond just owning some Bitcoin and I want to do something more. There's only a handful of them that are doing this right now. And we need to start bringing in a lot more. Now, maybe over time that will happen with this. But right now, the, the adoption is still, I think, very slow. And that's what I think is going to keep us correlated to risk markets, as I was talking about earlier. It sounds like one of the big conclusions of this is that we need decentralized stable coins to increase the TVL of DeFi and to move the DeFi space forward. Are there any other things that to you seem really obvious that you think folks in crypto, maybe who don't have the traditional capital markets background that you have, are there any things that you feel are super obvious to you, but maybe folks in crypto, it's not as obvious to them? I think cross-chain bridges are incredibly dangerous right now. We are lucky that Wormhole Ceratus One was bought by Jump that had the capital in order to fill that hole when they lost 120,000 ETH, the $300 million. Because if they didn't, that wrapped ETH, ETH, that's a stable coin, would have broke its peg. 
And I don't know if Solana would have survived that. And I don't know what kind of effect that would have even had on FTX. But it never happened because the Certus One was owned by a big company, Jump, that had the ability to acquire 120,000 ETH within a day to fill that hole. And so, and after Poly and some of the other ones, I think that these cross-chain bridges are a real risk in the business right now. They are great and they are necessary, but boy, they pose a big risk if they're done improperly because they could bring down a whole chain and they can have a big cascading effect. And we, I think, dodged a bullet there. So if, you know, if the question is, what are the things if I'm looking at is this whole idea about what's going on with cross-chain. Now, when I said they're dangerous, doesn't mean they should be outlawed or we shouldn't do it, but we gotta be really a lot more careful. This just can't happen again um, in this space because it's too dangerous when it comes to what it means. It's different than having some protocol hacked. A protocol hack ends with that protocol. Cross-chain bridge can take down a whole L1. And if, it, if it's not careful, that could really have devastating impacts you know, it could be like the modern version of Mt. Gox if we're not careful. Am I overstating this? Or if so, how? I don't think you are. So like, here, here's, here's my thought on bridges. When it comes to cross-chain bridges, the main challenge is ensuring that the synthetic assets on one chain are not arbitrarily inflated without proper backing on the original chain, right? So that's, the, that's one challenge. The second challenge is that right. the transporting process is secure. And when what we saw with the wormhole exploit between Sol and ETH, uh, was due to a problem with the former, right? And that's not that big of an issue, actually. I didn't, because uh, this is just a bug that can be fixed, right? And, and then obviously Sol was bailed out by Jump and there's, that's a whole, that's a whole different conversation. What's really concerning is if there were fun, uh, fundamental issues with the bridge in general. You, so, this, so the wormhole thing was because the code was kind of written incorrectly. What what see and that, and I think those kind of issues will get fixed as we have developers and whatever. And I think that kind of stuff will get fixed. What concerns me is if there's fundamental issues with bridges in general, even if the code is written perfectly. And I think what we'll end up seeing, what we'll end up seeing is that like decentralized exchanges will basically serve as the bridges. Like FTX is FTX is is the big bridge, is one of the big bridges to Solana right now. Obviously, people want to use the decentralized bridges like C Bridge and all the all the all the other bridges. But like, I think the centralized exchanges will serve as the uh, short-term solution to bridging, and it'll take years to figure out the decentralized bridging thing. In the same way that Aave was launched in, I think, 2016, maybe 20, early 2017. It took like four years or three years for Aave to really figure out bar decentralized borrowing lending. Same thing will happen with bridges. Yeah. And in the meantime, you know, like I said, we're lucky that the owner of that bridge was able to cover that hole without creating havoc. You know, the next cross-chain bridge that runs into a problem and is winds up short may not have that luxury. And so, you know, I think that that's, an, you know, like I said, I am a big fan of this business and I believe that million dollar target is out there. But these are the kind of things that really can really derail it if, if we're mm -hmm. not careful and need to be a little bit more careful with as we move forward that when you put the, look, a cross-chain bridge might might be as important to an L1 as moving from proof of work to proof of stake and you, you can't get it wrong. You just cannot mm -hmm. get it wrong. That's the way that I see it right now. It's not a protocol. Protocols can blow up left or right. That happens. It's the nature of the space, but that's a little bit different because it, it has a bigger ramification than just one protocol having a problem. Yeah, Jim, I, I agree with you. I think it, it does pose a question, are some of these systems too big to fail? And I think bridges probably increase the service here and the complexity. Um, and, and I think, look, it, it, we talk about you're only as strong as your weakest link. And I think introducing a lot of these bridges um, and having a lot of assets, to your point, would Solana, I think it's an interesting conjecture, would Solana would survive this event? And I think it's it's quite interesting. I don't I don't have the answer to that, uh, but it certainly spooked a lot of people. Um, and and I think as an industry, you know, this is sort of the the flip side of decentralization and having a system where you know I think a lot of self policing is required. A lot of insurance and insurance solutions are necessary. And I think it's probably one of the more nascent categories in crypto. And I historically speaking, I think in the I think for any industry to really take off, you need to have very robust insurance 
um, products. You, know, you talk about like expeditions back the whaling to like cross the Atlantic need to have insurance products. And to, the, to same the, the modern have, options like, market, the exactly. modern options market is an insurance product as well. Exactly. So, yes, so I agree. better agree. risk management solutions and tools is, is, is I think equally as important as, as decentralization because that I think ultimately, you know, no one, no, I think it, it would have set us ex- back years had Solana gone down. And, yeah. and I think it's very important to, as I think of investing in this space, anytime I, my eyes and I get excited about this non-sexy part, which is called insurance and risk management. So I hope that, that we can, look, I don't think projects, building bridges is very ambitious. I think it's going to continue to happen. I think we just need to be careful and think about, are we creating systems that are too big to fail and, and what are the systemic risks and addressing it via insurance and risk management. You know, and then the last thought I would give you on this subject, you know, you know, as far as, you know, the message I try to take to whenever I'm give presentations on this business to TradFi is I really try to push them into doing more than just buying some coins and really try and explore some of these businesses, uh, you know, and, you know, open up a wallet and trade on Uniswap. Just do it. And I think the light bulb will go off and you'll start to see stake on it or, or put it in a liquidity pool. To just do it. And I think you'll the light bulb will start going off that this is more than just number go up. And there's a lot more going on in this space. And when you start seeing it, you'll see the potential for it. And you also see the pitfalls of it as well, too. And it won't be a straight line if we get to that million dollars, uh, you know, a number in 10 years. Uh, you know, there will be a, a, a lot of uh, scary moments, but we can get there if we if we start doing more than just everybody pile into ETH and BDC and just you know, check your check your price 14 times a day. That's just not going to get us there. Absolutely. Yeah. Jim, this has been an awesome conversation. Um, I hope you enjoyed uh, going a little deeper into crypto than uh, usual. I feel like I listen to all, a lot of the shows that you've gone. It's primarily markets uh, macro focus. So I hope you enjoyed the, uh, the crypto deep dive because I know I did. I did too. Thank you guys. Enjoyed it. Hopefully yeah. th- th- this is a good overview for muggles and non-muggles out there. And so we're all <laughs> Jim, Harry, you Potter. Harry Potter. Uh, you need some Harry Potter glasses like Santiago does. <laughs> right. I gave him an idea now. He's going to start pushing for a director of muggles in every uh, one of oh, his Oh, no uh, doubt. I, I, I'm just going to yeah. become chief chief evangelist for non-muggles uh, of the Cryptoverse. <laughs> 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 That's my new title here. Yeah. Right. But Jeb, it's great. It's great. Great to get your insights. Really appreciate it. Thank Someone you. like you just jumping on the crypto space is super encouraging. I think you know I couldn't envision this like six, seven years ago, and, and just seeing people like you become so interested and deep in in the weeds of these protocols is is fascinating to see and super encouraging. So thank you. Yeah. All right, Jim. Be well. Thank you, Jim. Take care. <laughs>